Good morning. This is Pastor Jerry at the Chesterton Baptist Church, welcome, welcoming you to worship with us again in a in a beginning of a saga as we uh, learn to fellowship at a distance. But again, even though we are absent from each other physically, we're together in spirit. But uh, hope you're refreshed. Hope you're encouraged as you're going through all the adjustments that you're going through. But uh, as we begin, I just want to make a couple of announcements to let you know what's going on for us at the church. One, as far as we know right now, all services at the church will be canceled um, through this month, as you know. But the good news is that we have uh, not canceled uh, any of the meetings. And we will do most of the meetings that we have on Wednesday night, Bible study, and uh, Sunday evening, to be told study the worship service on Sunday, and, and even this Tuesday when we have the servant leadership team meeting, we will all be able to meet uh, through the Zoom uh, software uh, site on, on online. And so so we're going to continue that way. And so uh, we also have another platform for you to check in. It's on the faithlife.com uh, site, and so you can call uh, Linda uh, at the church or or call me or send us an email and we'll make sure you get that information and help you uh, work that through. Um, other pieces of information. Uh, there is one man that I met with last week. His name is Eric. And... Uh, I want to pray for Eric because he... A tested positive for the coronavirus. And so we want to keep him in prayers this morning as we begin. And Sandy's at work, and by the grace of God, she's not in direct line with the with those who are affected in the hospital. So that's an answer to prayer so far. Um, but our battle continues. And so we are here to worship the Lord, who is the uh, Lord of hosts, he is the Lord of Lords, and so uh, we turn to him, and we come to him this morning. And I wanted to uh, begin with a, a couple of scripture readings. Again, I mentioned this last week. To remind you in Psalm 27, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I dread? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom, whom shall I fear? When evildoers came upon me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and my enemies, they stumbled and fell. And though a host encamp against me, my heart will not fear. The war arise against me. In spite of this, I shall be confident. And there's one thing I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. The second passage I want to go to this morning, just because of our, our situation that we need to be encouraged in, comes from the book of James. And uh, you may know this passage in James 1.5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, 
and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, uh, unstable in all his ways. Therefore, James in verse 2 says, 1-2, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Likewise, Peter picks up that same theme. As we need wisdom, how to endure and go through this this time, Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Who are... Uh, protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, it may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's why we're here, to get the wisdom of Christ, to, to learn how to grow in faith in Christ, and we worship him because we have a hope that uh, he's watching over us, he's waiting for us, and it's because of Jesus Christ we're here this morning. All that we have all that we will have come from him. So would you bow with me as we begin the service and open up with a prayer to the Lord. Thank you, Jesus, that you are a heavenly father that needs no research, no um, team to inform you what's going on, no briefing committee, no headline news, no talking heads, no no book, no conference. You already know it all. And before there's a word in our tongue, you again understand how we groan, how all creation groans, uh, waiting for your coming. Father, thank you that uh, this day is your day. This is the day that you have made, and you will accomplish your purposes in it. And thank you for being our Lord. Thank you for being the defense of our life. Thank you for being the one that's really going to get us through, get all of us through, uh, by the grace and the mercy. And Father, those those uh, families now that have lost their loved ones, we, we particularly pray for uh, a real comfort for them. The... Uh, the sadness that's hitting our land, and yet it, there's a silent sadness 
it's just hard to understand what's going on when we're self-isolated. But there's not a voice that cries that you don't catch those tears. And so, Father, I just thank you for for being who you are. And I pray that you administer to Eric and I pray that you administer to his family. I pray that you would protect those that are in the direct line of service. I pray that you would give wisdom, real wisdom, for our leadership and knowing how to deal with this uh, onslaught of need and and dealing with that virus. Would you bring about a vaccine soon, Father, we ask you, and that you would be able to stem this uh, growth, uh, stop this growth in a way that uh, the damage would be limited. But, Father, I do pray as as we suffer and as we go through this, I pray that this virus would result in praise and glory and honor that somehow you would show yourself strong to all those who are in the middle of this battle. In the meantime, Father, we we acknowledge those insecurities. We, we know that, that we have fear, but we're not bound by that fear because we belong to you. And so we come to you and we pray what you've taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Father, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. Well, here we go. Uh, sit back with your cup of coffee with your family, wherever you are. And uh, again, I hope there are some uh, encouraging things for you this morning. But I know that you're being bombarded with the news and it's something that you can't get away from. But I'm going to continue to act as though there's more to life than just solving this problem. And so we're going to go into Acts uh, chapter 26, Acts chapter 11, sorry, and um, and continue to march through. Um, but this time it's not going to be a, uh, a long chunk. There's only four verses I'm going to look at. It's Acts 11, 26 to 30. Uh, let me back up to 25. And when he had left for Tarsus, this is Barnabas, to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought them to Antioch. And for an entire year, they met at the church, and they taught considerable numbers. And the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. Now at this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine in all over the world. And this took place in the reign of Claudius. And in, the, and in the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. And this they did, 
sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. Okay. We want to start with that little phrase about the city of Antioch. You you should know and remember that the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. The disciples, the learners, people who were still studying and understanding and exploring and trying to figure out all that God had done, they were learners, known to be learners first and Christians second. Somehow it's easy for Christians in our day and age to take these things for granted and to quit learning, but not at Antioch because Antioch was a new center for Christianity as as the Spirit of God had been moving the gospel out of Jerusalem up to a Gentile uh, headquarters up in Antioch. And so the first thing I want to have you know is that the Christians were known, the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. Uh, in Antioch, it was a it was closer to the uh, farther away from the Jerusalem culture and closer to the Roman culture. And therefore, what you found in Antioch was a whole lot of uh, uh, opportunity for the gospel to be spread among the Gentiles. But you'll notice that in the passage it said that the, disciple, that the uh, prophets went down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And just so that you know, Jerusalem is 3,800 feet above sea level. And any time in Scripture you will pick up the phrase that they went up to Jerusalem or they came down to, uh, from Jerusalem. But now they're going down to Antioch, which is closer to the sea. And, uh, and as they get into this city, uh, something unique happens in in Antioch that I don't want you to miss uh, the point of this passage. And I think somehow because of the way we read Scripture, we will misunderstand. And the point I want to focus on today is to look at how to read a, a particular passage that has to do with prophecy. And there's something about this that it would be easy to miss. And so that's what I'm going to concentrate on so that we can look at the passage and really get the meaning out of it. Well, do you remember back when you were, gosh, when was it, 60s? I don't know when this came out. But they had the magic eight balls where if you're trying to make a decision to do something, should I ask Darlene out for a date? Or should I take this job? And you had that magic, that black ball, and you turn it upside down, and that little cube would come up to the top, uh, you, yes, you should, or you, uh, you, you can count on it was the, the phrase I remember. And so oftentimes when you were growing up, you tried to figure out to make decisions, but you needed some kind of uh, assurance. Well, you see this all the time, that we want to have information about what's going to happen in the future. So when you go to the Chinese um, restaurants, or well, when you used to go to the Chinese restaurants, you used to get those 
fortune cookies. And so the idea of a fortune cookie would be some indicator of, of, uh, pro, uh, of good luck or some good fortune. We are used to uh, using all kinds of instruments to help us um, predict the future, whether it's in the stock markets or learning how to forecast the weather and looking at those hurricane models. But I want to tell you about one thing that they did back in the first century that is a forgotten legacy, and we don't do this anymore, um, thankfully. But in Rome, this, this will sound strange, I admit. Uh, in Rome, they had this uh, group of chickens that were called sacred chickens. And in Rome, they would be statues, and you can see it on the screen. But before they went into military battle, a military general or consul would turn to the chickens and get a reading of whether or not it would go well for them or it would go bad for them. And so one consul in particular, Publius Clodius Pulcher, during the First Punic War, he turned to the sacred chickens for approval of his plan to launch a surprise attack on the Carthaginian fleet at the harbor of Drapana. Well, he would read these chickens, and if the chickens were aggressive and hungry and they would go after the feed, then they would say, this is going to be an aggressive uh, sign, a good sign, and we're going to go into battle. But if they didn't go eat... It was a bad omen. And so uh, Claudius Publius Pulcher said, well, fine, if they're not going to eat, let them drink. And he threw the chickens overboard and went into the sea. <laughs> uh, I'm glad we don't have to look at the chicken behavior anymore. But just so that you know, it was kind of common to use animals as omens, even in the New Testament, remember when Peter denied Jesus three times? There was a cock that crewed uh, three times. And so it's in the background. But we're trying to figure out what the best way is to go forward. Likewise, in, um, in Greece, there would be people that would be oracles who would give a prophecy and a prophet or an oracle would be a person employed uh, to give direct, who, was, who had direct inspiration, who would give information about these signs and omens to declaring the will of the gods. Uh, the famous one is the Delphi oracle. And the way that she would do her, her prophecies, she would be sitting on a stone or on her chair and there would be people around her but in her case she'd always have to have a question to prompt her answer and sometimes when she would give an answer the oracle would get into an ecstasy and give such a, a response that was hard to understand and therefore a prophet was employed to interpret what she was saying. And those who were explained the message 
were usually older men, and they were called prophets. And they would, again, explain uh, what the oracle had said. Well, this leads us into what our passage is here. It says, the disciples at Antioch, who were called Christians, they received some prophets who came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. Now, remember, Antioch had just had a year of teaching, and God was doing something in Antioch in the church there, and the prophets came down, and I wanted you to focus on what was going on in this small little village in Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up, and he began to indicate by the Spirit that there would be a great famine all over the world. And this took place in the reign of Claudius, which was about 41 A.D. And in the, in, the purport, in the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. Well, you notice it just concentrates here on Agabus, a man from Jerusalem who for some reason, wasn't prompted by a question, but God was uh, inspiring him to stand up and proclaim to the church there that there would be a great famine. And it says all over the world. In that day and time, it particularly meant the Roman Empire, not the complete world as it was, but it's just the world as they knew it, as they lived in it. But Agabus stood up and he shared shared that prophecy. But the prophecy wasn't the only thing that he did because he was one of a team of prophets. And if a prophet were subject to the prophets, the whole group of prophets would be um, declaring not only the the prophecies like this famine but they were they were encouraging the believers to be strong and true to Christ and so the word of, the work of a prophet was not only to prophesy but to also to disciple and strengthen the church well let's go on <clears throat> agabus is later on uh, recorded in, in Acts, you'll see where he goes to the Apostle Paul and has another uh, prophecy to tie his belt with Paul to tell Paul that in his circumstance, he is not going to have an easy go, but he was going to encounter conflict. The prophet Agabus, probably the same one, uh, these two times... It's mentioned in Scripture because of the two situations. But I want you to point. I want you to think about this man, because he's not a young man. He's probably not a greenhorn. He's probably a man who knew well that he had this gift, and he regularly regularly employed this gift as he touched people's lives with his gift. But more than anything. What this says to me about Agabus is he was walking close to the Holy Spirit. And he was being used by God 
to prepare the church for its future struggles. Agabus followed the Spirit in faithfully proclaiming to Paul and to others the days ahead, whether it be famine or conflict. But this is what the prophets were doing <clears throat> in Antioch. But let's back up for a minute. Now, just what is a prophet? Well, if you go into the Greek language, because there were Greek prophets as well as Hebrew prophets, and Jesus warned about true, warned about false prophets, but there are many prophets around that time trying to predict what was going to happen. The Greek word prophetes as a noun is one who predicts. The stem is f p h e f to say, and pro meaning before, to say before, to predict or to proclaim in advance. That's what the verb means. Uh, by the way, do you know who the first prophet was in the Bible? Do, 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 do. The first prophet in the Bible was Noah's great-grandfather, Enoch, who warned that God was going to judge the people on the earth. Well, there's the free, that was a freebie. Okay. Agabus is named among a group of prophets, whether they were young or old. We don't have that information, except they were there to strengthen the believers and then to say what's going on. Keep in mind that most of the prophets in the Old Testament like Agabus, they were to help Israel stay true to the Lord, true to the covenant, because all too often Israel neglected, Christ, neglected God and became unfaithful. The prophets made predictions, uh, not only about the behavior that they were to, to keep in line and to keep being obedient, but they would also make predictions later on about the Messiah and the redemptive kingdom uh, that, that there would be one that would be coming, uh, a prophet like Moses and, and then David and Isaiah and Jeremiah. They all pointed towards a future kingdom. And so in that sense, they were making predictions. Now, there are lots of words that... that that you can use, synonyms that you can use for prophecy or prophets to predict, to reckon, to envision, to divine, to interpret, to think, to guess, to suppose. But the idea is that you're setting up a, a perspective, an expectation, and that would require you to have faith and then to move out in action. Jesus knew that. When he was walking around, he was talking about the prophets of old when he told the disciples on the way to Emmaus, this is what I told you when I, while I was still with you, that everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And then Jesus opened their eyes, their minds, so that they could understand the scripture. And he told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer, and he will rise from the dead, and on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name 
to all the nations, beginning at Jerusalem. The prophecy that the kingdom was at hand, the prophecy that Jesus had fulfilled all those promises, and the prophecy that the nations are now going to be included, were all part of the Old Testament scheme that people came to know. It also says in the book of Hebrews that in the past times, uh, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets, and many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed the heir of all things, and through him and through whom also he made the universe. So what you have in the Old Testament is a plan that there is a promise to be fulfilled. And Christ said, uh, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And therefore Christ fulfilled all of the law and all of the prophets. And that's what he means when he says, I've accomplished salvation it is finished. Well, to understand how to read the Bible means that you have to understand how to read prophecy in the larger picture of things. To read the Bible rightly is to read the Bible with a healthy understanding of biblical prophecy. But prophecy is getting a bad rap and has a bad image. Because often when you hear the word prophecy, you hear the word, you, you, you feel the emotions of fear and concern and, and uh, a freezing kind of a, I'm not sure what's going to happen. And that anxiety that comes about with anxiety. But to remove the fear of prophecy, we need to have a Christ-centered, a grounded picture of the whole of Scripture and to be gospel-focused. And that's really what I want you to hear today, that proper, properly understood biblical uh, theology and prophecy, they go together, and they acknowledge that the Bible contains a unified message, message and that Christ is the center of that message. The revelation about Christ as the fulfillment of all those prophecies was made progressively clearer, not only through the prophets, but also through the apostles and also through the teachers and also through all the people who were called by Christ in the church. Throughout the Old Testament, it was understood, but it was clearly seen and revealed in the New Testament. Well, when you don't read the Bible and you distance yourself from what was going on historically way back there in that distant horizon, it's easy for us as Christians to easily misunderstand prophecy in the Bible because we assume, given our day and age, that the primary intent of the prophet was to foretell the future. But that wasn't the primary intent of the prophet. The primary intent of the genre of prophecy in the Hebrew Bible was not to predict the future, certainly not hundreds of years in advance, 
but rather to address contingent social, political, and religious circumstances in ancient Israel and in the New Testament era that would lead to what we now understand as prophecy in the end times in the future. But originally, those men who gave prophecies weren't thinking about the New Testament fulfillment the way we do. And therefore, it's easy to misunderstand. And I'm not going to get into a uh, a full-blown uh, exposition of, of the second coming of Christ here. I only want you to hear this, that one of our greater challenge, uh, one of our greater challenges is to not overplay the card of eschatology over the gospel. Somehow talking about the end of times and the late great planet Earth and the book of, of Revelation will attract more attention and create and stir up more emotion than the cross and the resurrection of Christ. This, I would say to you, is unbalanced. And that's a great temptation for us because we don't understand that, that the way we read Scripture has been influenced more by our culture, just like the people in, in Antioch. And so there's a wide range of attitudes when it comes to understanding biblical prophecy. One is there's a lot of people who just have no idea what what it's all about. And so they're ignorant of the, the the kingdom of God and the purposes of God. And so they have no idea. And therefore, they may be most afraid or they just may be indifferent because they really don't care. But there's a lot of people out there that when you talk about prophecy, they just blow it off. There are others, there are others who, when they hear the word prophecy, it really encourages them because they know that there's a there's a closure of history and there's a, a planning for the hope of the coming of Christ. And so they get eager and they get excited with real hope. And they should, for that's what Christ would tell us to do in Matthew 24, <clears throat> 25, to wait and watch and to work and to worship. These are things that just stir your heart because you know what's coming. And that's part of the, our faith. But for some people, when you hear, they hear the word prophecy, it strikes terror in the heart because it reminds them of death and it reminds them, reminds them of judgment. It reminds them, reminds them of the termination of the ages. Hard to get your head around that. Way too often when people start talking about prophecy, though, they get into arguments and they, get, they, they start getting either dogmatic or they start getting uh, 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 angry and they, they will begin to compete. And, and then all of a sudden the relationships um, almost become unchristian in the sense that they're more about competition and, 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 and judging people by what they believe. So unfortunately, the very word prophecy and the word eschatology often generates so diverse, so many diverse perspectives and much heated discussion within the church, which results in people not getting along or not 
loving well or not fellowshipping well because the relationship is based on agreement with what you interpret as the premillennial, amillennial, postmillennial position that you have towards prophecy in the end of times. So whatever happens, uh, you understand that when you shift the focus off of Christ and you put the focus on trying to interpret what's going on in the end times, there's a, something that's out of balance. When Paul would say that, that in Christ all the promises and in Christ all the prophecies are yes because it's all about Christ. Well, we forget that. Now let me go back to that passage in Acts. Let me ask you this question. What caught your attention when you read that passage? Let me read it again. One of them named Agabus stood up and he began to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine all over the world. And this took place in the reign of Claudius. This was in 41 AD, 41-42. Eight years after Christ's resurrection. And in the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. And this they did, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. Now, when you read that passage, what caught your eye? If you're thinking like most people reading that passage, is Agabus is just given a prophecy. And they would focus on the, the, the work, the word, the famine, the, the terrible thing that, that here's a prediction that's going to come true. Notice that the prediction here isn't about the end times. Notice that it's not about uh, uh, the second coming of Christ or, or isn't about revelation. It's just a prediction about this particular famine. But that isn't the gist of the passage. The meaning of the passage is not even on the prophecy, but it's the response of the people to the prophecy. Did you catch that? Because it's not so much what happens to us, it's our response to it. And therefore, this new center of Christianity in Antioch, they took, they took as this a famine as an opportunity to demonstrate the love of Christ. Therefore, it says, uh, in the proportion that any of the disciples had means. Again, the disciples were learning how to love. They weren't called Christians. They were called disciples who were learning how to give. They had the means, and each of them determined they chose intentionally to say, we are going to help our brethren everywhere back in Judea. My word, did you get that point? It's not about prophecy. It, the fact that the Spirit of God opened this opportunity through the famine to show the church an opportunity to reflect Christ. Because it's about Christ. Again, it's Christ-centeredness. And that's the whole point. They, they took an offering. People who were marginalized 
Gentiles who are now giving to the church. And you'll begin to see this pattern. Wherever the Spirit of God is, there's a freedom to give. There's a freedom to love. That's the point of this passage. That this famine, though severe, was being met with a Christian group of people who were giving, who were giving, who were giving. And they sent it in charge of Barnabas, the son of encouragement, and they sent it by way of Paul to the elders. Well, if you understand that, then you can ask this question with me. Is the coronavirus then a sign of the end of our times? You see, eschatology that only deals with end-time events, like the very end of time, really misunderstands what eschatology and prophecy entail. What it entails is the opportunity to reflect Christ and the coming of Christ as we endure all these things that we go through by the power of the Holy Spirit to maintain our love. Ever since then, ever since the Christ, ever since Jesus said, it is finished and died on the cross and was brought again, raised again from the dead. Ever since that time, we have been inaugurated into the end times. And therefore, we are all living, have all been living in the end times in the eschatological age of the kingdom. And we are all awaiting his second coming. Even our salvation has to be seen as eschatological because the promise and the prophecies are all yes in Christ, just as he promised. And therefore, whether it's messianic prophecy, whether it's situational prophecy, whether it's going to be uh, fulfilled later on, the key is not so much uh, the prophecy as focused on what Christ is doing in those opportunities, wherever they are and wherever they fall along the line until he comes again. As As Jeremiah would say, I know the plans that I have for you. I know that I have plans to prosper you, not to harm you. I have plans to give you a future and a hope. And it's that it's that plan that God is using today's circumstances to give me the opportunity to glorify God in my relationships. And therefore, if we lack wisdom in knowing how to have faith, if we lack wisdom in knowing how to love, if we lack wisdom in knowing how to have a balanced perspective of prophecy, ask of God. But this means that you have to have a relationship with Christ. If you don't know Christ, you will certainly miss the whole thing of prophecy in the end times. Well, with that, I just want to leave you with the encouragement that as we go through this here in Chesterland and wherever you are, we are Christians in Chesterland. As they were disciples called Christians in Antioch, we are disciples who are called Christians here in Chesterland, or wherever you are. But it means that you have a chance to reach out and serve others at this time of need. Whether it's praying, reach out by phone, uh, stay away from them, don't don't uh, be a carrier of the virus, but, but certainly don't stop loving. And certainly 
stay focused in on the word. Because as you heard Agabus would contribute out of his, his understanding of what the Spirit of God was doing, you too can be led by the Spirit to contribute to the church, even though you're sitting at home. Well, let's, uh, let's make the most of this opportunity and believe Christ is going to give us the strength to go through and love, love each other and help us all go through this time. So let's pray. Father, we ask you for wisdom. We ask that your Holy Spirit would really open our eyes, that we would understand what you're doing, and that we would know what the will of God is for us. But more than that, Father, we would pray that we would have the same heart that those disciples who made the decision intentionally to reach out to those who didn't uh, have the, the, the resources that they needed. But above it all, Father, uh, you know that uh, the promises and the prophecies that you have really are to lead us back to Christ. And so, Father, I would pray that you would keep us Christ-centered, gospel-centered, anchored in the Scripture, being people of faith, not people of fear. So, Father, would you glorify yourself through your church and touch other people's lives and bring them to Christ at this time. For your glory and our growth, we pray. Amen.